Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 36. Genesis chapter 36. Before we begin this morning, I would like to begin with a word of prayer. Would you join me? Father in heaven, this is indeed your word. Dig out our ears, O God, that we may hear. Uncover our hearts that your word may touch us, that it may hit us, that it may strike us, wound us with your word, that you may heal us by it. That we would be instructed more than this, that we might see you and rejoice in you, O God. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been working our way through the book of Genesis And we find ourselves, Genesis chapter 36, and it is a genealogy. You thought we were done with them. You hoped we were done with them. But here we have another one, and it is is a lengthy one. You know, when we come to passages like this, whether in our own reading or whether in our preaching, it, it is times like this when we are tempted to just, let's go find a more inspiring part of the Bible. Let's go find a different part. Let's just skip it to something more interesting, more more immediately relatable. But we are called not to find the parts of God's word that we like the most or that are easy for us. Rather, we are called to submit entirely to them and to believe that it is entirely God's word. As it tells us it is. And as it has shown itself to be again and again and again. So, if you're, if you're visiting with us this morning, I make no apology for what we're about to do. But if, this, if you have not been around the Bible very much, and you're reading it now with us for the first time, and you're thinking, the Bible is like this, I can assure you it is not entirely a genealogy. In fact, it comprises such a short part of the book of Genesis, which we have been working our way through. But I will also assure you of this, that it is an important part of Genesis. It is an important part of Moses' message to the people of Israel in his day. And it is an important message. It has an important message of the Lord for us today. What could possibly be the message of another genealogy? As I was meditating on this passage, I was reminded of of a character from a a story, the books of The Lord of the Rings. You may be familiar with them. Maybe you didn't read the books, you watched the movie version. But The Lord of the Rings, there is a character entitled, uh, whose name is Aragorn. And when he is first met by the hobbits, by Frodo and Sam and, and the others, they are unsure of him. He is a suspicious character. He does not look like someone who is trustworthy. He is a simple, he is a, a man who is dressed simply. He's dressed as a woodsman. He makes his way almost as a wanderer. He's called Stalker. But very soon we find out that there is more to Aragorn than meets the eye. And Bilbo Baggins, who wants to introduce his nephew Frodo to Aragorn, gives him this this poem. And it begins by saying, all that is gold does not glitter. 
All that is gold does not glitter. The point being, Aragorn is gold. And just because he doesn't glitter doesn't mean he isn't gold. But the opposite is true also, that just because something glitters doesn't make it gold. And if it's true that all that is gold does not glitter, it is equally true that all that glitters is not gold. And that is the message that Moses has for the people of Israel and the Lord has for us today. This is the message of Genesis chapter 36 all the way to the first verse of chapter 37. Not all that glitters is gold. And we need this message today. You and I need this message. Our children and grandchildren, our friends, we need this message. Why? Because we live in a day when we are tempted to believe that bigger is always better. The more power, the more influence, the more prestige, the more glamour, the more prosperous something or someone is, the more important it must be. That that is where happiness and joy and significance lies. This passage, simply by bringing all of these names together, is Moses' way of pulling the rug out of that idea. You and I didn't know you could do so much with a genealogy. So let's walk through this morning... This passage, here's here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to read the entire passage. I'm going to make some comments along the way, all right? I realize that may sound boring to you. If, if If you're having trouble following, that's okay. Imagine how much trouble I am having in, in trying to pronounce all of these names, okay? But we're going to read through the passage... And then we're going to make some critical observations, right? It's, it's very simple. Read through the passage, make some comments, make some critical observations. All right, walk with me as we read through Genesis chapter 36. Verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. And you'll remember Edom, Esau is called Edom. Remember when he uh, sold his birthright for a, a pot of red stew And because it was red stew, uh, he was called Edom. The very name Edom means red. And so he is called red. He's got that name. And so his followers become known as the Edomites. And the land that they will eventually inhabit will later be called Edom, the nation of Edom. So just to help you follow along, this is why he said he's called Edom here. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who was Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Ahalabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. Now, Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Raul. And Aholabama bore Jewash, and Jalam, and Korah. And these were the sons of Esau, who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and his animals and all his goods, which all he had gained in the land of Canaan. And he went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. 
So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esau. And I'll just warn you again, or warn you now, Moses didn't feel it was enough to give us the names once. He wants to repeat them a couple of times. And so if they sound familiar, for whatever reason, this isn't riveting, riveting literature for you and I. Apparently, this was riveting stuff for Moses. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons, Aliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, and Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Temen, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adol, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Raul, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Oholabama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, and she bore to Esau Jewish, Jalem, and Korah. These were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, were Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, and Chief Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. They were the sons of Adah. These were the sons of Raul, Esau's sons, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, and Chief Mizah. These were the chiefs of Raul in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. And these were the sons of Oholabama, Esau's wife, Chief Jewish, Chief Jalam, and Chief Korah. These were the chiefs who descended from Oholabama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Esau, who was Edom, and these were their chiefs. And then he gives, in verse 20, all the way to verse 30, he departs from giving us a genealogy of the people of Esau, And he starts giving us a general list of names, a general genealogy of leaders in this area of Seir, which is the area that Esau is going to. He is moving his family, lock, stock, and barrel, to this region of Seir. So now he is giving us the list of this name, these names, and we'll get to why he does this in just a moment. These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land. Lotan, Shabal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Horai and Hemam. Lotan's sister was Timnah. These were the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Menahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These were the sons of Zibion, both Aja and Anna. This was Anna who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father Zibion. These were the children of Anna, Dishan and Halabama, the daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Dishan, Hemden, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These were the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akin. These were the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Haran, and Aran. These were the chiefs of the Horites. Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Anna, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, and Chief Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites according to their chiefs in the land of Seir. Now these, he returns to the line of Esau here. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhaba. And when Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Basra, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, 
Husham of the land of Temanites reigned in his plates. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bidad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place, and the name of his city was Avith. When Hadad died, Samla of Masrika reigned in his place. And when Samla died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. When Saul died, Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. And when Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place, and the name of his city was Pal. His wife's name was Mehetabal, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mazihab, I think. And these were the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their families and their places by their names, Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jetheth, Chief Ahalabama, Chief Elah, Chief Pinan, Chief Kenaz, Chief Teman, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, Chief and Chief Iram. These were the chiefs of Edom according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Esau was the father of the Edomites. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And I will be happy if I never have to read that passage out loud again. So let's break down what's happening, all right? He opens up with this, verse 1, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Part of what we should remember here is that we have seen this happen before. There is, if you remember Genesis chapter 3, God promises uh, Eve that there is, going, she is going to, there is going to come one, a future seed, who will conquer Satan and sin and death, who through Adam and Eve's sin, they have introduced into the world. And there is going to be through the, there is going to be through them the promises of God who are going to flow and come. And we see Seth is that line of promise. But before Seth, we have, before we have his genealogy in chapter five, in chapter four we have the genealogy of Cain, which is the son of the curse, the son who is refused who is refused from the Lord. And in chapter 25, we, before we have the genealogy of Isaac, we are given the genealogy of Ishmael. And here, before we are given the, the life of Jacob and Israel and, and, and his sons, Moses explores the genealogy of Esau and the Edomites. And this is important. And ver- verses 1 to 8 focus on Esau's immediate family. Here we are reminded of Esau's two Canaanite wives, and then he adds a third. You may remember the story early on when his parents are unsatisfied that he has taken to himself two Canaanite, two Canaanite wives. He, he goes and he finds a third, and he marries her. We are given their names, and we are given his sons, and we find that because things, he has grown so prosperous, so wealthy, so great that it's become too crowded to live near his brother, so he, he moves away. And we need to be clear, when we're told he moves to the land of Seir, this is outside the land of promise. This is across the Jordan River, to the south, outside the nation, what we would call today the people of Israel. It would be outside the land that God has promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So verses 1 to 8 focus on his immediate family. Verses 9 to 43 focus on his expanded family. In verses 9 to 19, we, are, we, we see how Esau's family expands. He goes from 
having just a, a five children, and now we're given his grandchildren listed there. It, it begins to grow. And then in verses 20 to 23, we are, or rather even uh, earlier than that, in verses 15 to 19, we see that his family not only grows in numbers, but grows in influence, in power. They become chiefs. Significant grouping of people. And then in verses 20 to, 20, 20 to 30, we are given this list of the sons of Horite, these who lived in the land of Seir. And what we're going to see is that these are the people that Esau and his family and his descendants displaced. They pushed them out they, through various means and are married, but they ended up ruling over them. And then in the last verses, four, verses 31 to 39, we see them growing in significance from chiefs. They are listed as kings. And then in verses 40 to 43, Moses highlights the 11 powerful clans uh, that Esau's family is going to grow into. What we find very quickly is part of what he is trying to show us, some of the observations that we have is first, is that Moses is trying to highlight for the people of Israel that Esau and Israel, these two nations, rather Edom and Israel, they are connected. They share a family bond. And this may sound unimportant, but it is important to the storyline of Scripture. When Israel comes out of Egypt and they are traveling God gives special instructions to his people not to make war on the people of Edom because they are his brothers. They are their brothers. They are related to them. They have a share in the promises, at least indirectly, having been blessed by God because of Abraham. But eventually the people of Edom create tension and problems for the people of Israel. The people of Edom very early on refuse to allow the people of Israel to pass through their land. They do not allow them to have any food, any water from their land, forcing the people of Israel to go around. They become a thorn in the side of the nation of Israel for years. Eventually, they will betray the people of Israel so that when another nation comes and seeks to conquer them, it is the Edomites who, who give them access And show them the way that they can defeat the Israelites. And it is probably the the most well-known Edomite, Herod the king, who ends up crucifying Christ Jesus. These are a close family relation. And because they share in this close family relation, they, they share in these promises that God gave to Abraham. You remember those promises from Genesis chapter 12 where God says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you or who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 17, we read these words, God says to Abraham, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Land, blessing, nations, seed, descendants, 
and Esau, the nation of Edom, shares in those blessings. They share in that particular blessing. They're a result of that blessing that to, to make Abraham's name great and to make him the father of a multitude of nations. One of those nations is the nation of Edom. And just as God honored his promise to Abraham by blessing Ishmael, making him a great nation, so he blesses that promise by making Esau a great nation. Part of what Moses is trying to do for the people of Israel in that first time is help them to realize that this nation whom they are connected with shares in these blessings with them. Not in the same way and not in the the promises that God has made, that, that covenant relationship that God has made with Israel. But they reap some of the blessings And if God fulfills his promise to Abraham by mercifully making Esau a nation, how much more confident ought the people of Israel to be that God will bless those who are his in truth? And you and I, as we look around us, if God is so merciful to show his grace and mercy to those who do not love him, to those who at every turn reject him, to those who go their own way, how much more mercy will he show to those who humbly submit to him by faith? This is what Christ picks up on in Matthew chapter 6. Christ says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, not about your, your body, what you will put on, or or." If he was speaking today, maybe he would talk about, don't worry about how much that gas you are putting in your car is going to cost. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor they reap nor they gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father knows and he feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, these these flowers, how they grow. They don't toil, they don't work, they don't spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, they seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father, he knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things... All these things, and you can almost just say, these little things that we place so much importance in, all these things shall be added unto you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, by pointing to the prosperity of Esau and his family line, part of what Moses wants Israel to see is that if God will so bless Esau, who does not have a share in the direct promises and in the covenant, how much more can we trust him to bless and fulfill his promises to us? 
And yet, how quick are you and I to fail to forget these things? How quick are we when we watch the news, when we see the forecast of what may coming, of what may come, when we, when we see, when we worry about what is happening in another part of the world and, and how it may affect life here. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. If God shows such mercy to these who have rejected him, how much more will he be sure to give and fulfill his promises to those for whom his son has died. Second thing that he, showed, that he points us to in, these, in this passage is the prosperity and the power of the Edomites. In fact, this weighs heavily on Moses. He is trying to unpack in this genealogy how powerful the, the nation of Edom becomes. And it becomes so rather quickly. Where, where Israel is going to languish in the land of Canaan and go to Egypt, Edom just expands so rapidly. Verses 1 to 5, we're told about his family, and it just begins to grow. Verses 9 to 14, his grandsons. And then maybe his grandsons, chiefs, his family grows. And this, this is significant power now. And then we are told about these kings, this nation that they move into, and they don't just become living as, as part of it. They take it over. It is the land of Seir. When they get there, it is the land of Edom. Not too far, too, not too much long, uh, later long. And then in verses 31 onward, we see the kings that are listed. Eight kings rule in Edom before the first king rules in Israel. And by using this simple genealogy, Moses is telling a story. And if he was to try to tell the story in another way, it would probably take chapters and chapters and chapters. But in just a short, brief chapter, he is expanding several generations and telling us what happens. And this story that he is telling us is how Esau grows in prosperity and power. Not just wealth, but wealth and might, wealth and strength, wealth and political influence. And all of this is contrasted with Genesis 37.1, where we read, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. It's almost like he is saying, meanwhile, back at the ranch. And Jacob is, Jacob is, is there living in, in land that doesn't belong to him. Another translation will say, Jacob is living, he's dwelling in the land in which his father sojourned. That is, his father was living in a land that that wasn't his. It is a temporary residence. If this was a city, Edom is living in the penthouse. Jacob is renting out a small room, unable to find housing unable to purchase something for himself. All the wealth, all the power, all the prestige, all the prosperity, all of it 
seems to be quickly flowing to Esau. Meanwhile, Jacob has so little. Jacob has so little. By every human measurement, it is Esau that appears to be significant. It is Esau and the Edomites who appear to be important and successful. By all human appearances, they look like the ones you want to be on the side of. Now we measure everything by what we can see. We measure something's importance by the TV ratings it gets. By how many people watch, by how many celebrities or big names or big corporations will sponsor something. We measure significance and success by how many followers someone has on on social media. By the size of one's home or the make of one's car. Or by how many people buy their albums or how they are doing in the polls or who listens to them. We measure our own significance and success by the job that we have, the paycheck we received, the college we went to, the success of our kids, how athletic or physically attractive we are. And if there was some way that we could measure the opinions of people in the ancient world on which brother, Jacob or Esau, they believed God had blessed which brother God had promised, or which brother was going to become the most important in the world, no doubt it would have come back to Esau again and again and again. But despite the fact that Moses is highlighting the power and prestige of Esau, throughout this chapter he is highlighting something else. Esau is growing in prosperity He's growing in power. But he is doing so at the expense of righteousness. He is showing us something critical. That Esau foolishly and faithlessly abandons the Lord. We see this in verses 6 and 7. When Esau is... His family begins to grow. His wealth begins to grow. And he, he leaves. He, he tells his brother, I'm going to leave. And what is the reason that he, he gives for, for, re, for leaving? For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. On the very face of it, Canaan was massive, plenty of space for them to stay in. And if he knew what was good for him, ultimately good for him, he would have sacrificed comfort and ease for the sake of remaining close to his brother, whom he knew was the one through whom the promises of God would flow. The covenant of God rested with Israel. And if Edom, Esau, had two cents, two spiritual cents to rub together, he would have stayed close to his brother. But he leaves. He walks away. And and you can see there, maybe as I read verse 7, you thought, that sounds familiar. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds exactly like the reasoning Lot gave, doesn't it? Listen to this, Genesis chapter 13, verse 6. 
Now the land was not able to support them, that they may dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And we had the same phrases used again and again in these two symbols, in these two passages. It is almost as if you have Lot in one way, who forsakes the promises of God, goes off on his own, and we know the disastrous end that he finds. And Edom here, Esau, is going that same direction. And the second step we see in Esau's disastrous spiritual journey away from God is that he begins to marry, intermarry with people who are idolatrous. We saw this in the very first four verses. He marries two women, we are told, who are Canaanite. The reason God forbid, forbade his people to intermarry with the Canaanites wasn't racial issues, it was spiritual The people of Canaan were so spiritually idolatrous that they would drag his people away from him. And yet that's exactly what Esau does. He he marries two Canaanite wives. And in verse 2, we're told about this woman, Oholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. And if you, that sounds familiar, if you go down to verse 25, you'll find that Aholabama is one of the people of Seir. Esau himself has married one of the women of the land in which he is going to live. And in verse 12, we're told about Timnah. She is a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz. And in verse 22, we're told that she too is one of the people of Seir. What we have is this intermarrying of the people an interfaith marriage, we might call it today. And you might ask, why is this a big deal? And the answer we see very quickly in verse 38. One of those kings that comes from this union, one of these kings from the Edomite people that reigns before Israel, his name is Baal Hanan. Names in the ancient world were massively significant. People often named their children to reflect the deities they worshipped. And here in this individual's life, he is named after Baal. One of the deities that so opposes, I'm sorry, the deity doesn't oppose, it is all of his people so oppose the people of God, caused so many problems. So that while Esau's family has won prosperity and political power, they have lost their spiritual heritage. And all of a sudden, we are in a better place to read Genesis 37.1 again. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a sojourner, in the land of Canaan. Imagine you're Jacob for a moment. Your brother is growing prosperous, wealthy, your brother's growing in power. And you communicate whack one to another. He, he sends you his Facebook updates. You're tracking with him. And all of his social media is like, look, I had another kid. Look, took over another territory. Look at the city. Look at the palace I'm living in. Look at how sweet my life is. Look at how great my, 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 my farm is. How great my city is. Look how powerful I've become. 
His life, His line. They are the who's who of the ancient world. Meanwhile, Jacob, slaving away, growing old. Certainly his family has grown. He's got 12 sons. And the story is not done on them yet. Not, they are in for another crazy ride. Imagine for a moment. And yet Jacob stays in the land. He doesn't leave for better opportunities. He doesn't leave for better prosperity, for better power. He trusts in God. And as a result, Jacob and Israel inherit all the promises of God. It would be easy for us to read this chapter and think that Esau's growing and glittering power, prestige, and influence signals the failure of God's promises. But while Moses records the prosperity and power of Esau, he's not impressed with it. What strikes Moses more than anything else is the spiritual darkness that Esau leads his family into. Everything about Esau's life and his line looks glittering and powerful, but not all that glitters is gold. Indeed, what you and I are to see that it is better to be small and inherit all the eternal promises of God than to be great and stand outside of God's blessings. We are tempted to envy the powerful, the prestigious, the prosperous in this world. We see this in the psalm, Psalm 73.3. David writes, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But all that this world offers cannot fulfill the promises of what God gives. It is better to be small with little in this world but have the eternal promises of God than to have all that this world promises and nothing in the next. Psalm 73. Jeff read it earlier. Let me just read a few verses from it. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord And do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That you gotta delight yourself in the in the Lord before He will give you the desires of your heart. Because if you're delighting yourself in something else, God doesn't promise to give you that. But if we will delight ourselves in the Lord, that he promises to give us. He promises to give us himself. And there is nothing better. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Verses 16 to 17, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked For the arms of the wicked shall be broken. But the Lord upholds the righteous. Christ tells us this. It is not the powerful 
It is not the prosperous. It is not the mighty who inherit the earth. It is the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And meekness is, make no mistake, meekness is not weakness. To be meek is to endure all evil. To plow through, committing your way to the Lord. It is when trials come, it it is to drive to God in hope, in faith, in confidence, rather than away from Him. So when hardship or hate or scorn or the false promises of the world, meekness, to have that character causes us to drop to our knees. It is the meek who inherit the earth. Friends, the Lord is calling us this morning through this simple passage. Do not be impressed with the world. Don't be impressed with what you see the world has to offer. Kids, all that, God, all that the world has does not hold a candle to the glory of what God has in store for those who trust Him and follow His way. Better to be small and insignificant in this world and have all that God promises us than to have all that this world promises and nothing in the next. Do not be impressed with influence. Do not be swayed by politicians. Look to what God has said is important. Trust Him. And this bears itself out in a whole host of ways. Husbands, wives, the world will tell you to just do you. Go and find something that will make you happy, someone that will make you happy. That is the way of pain. It is the way of hardship. Remain faithful to one another. Even when it hurts, knowing that there is a deeper satisfaction to come, I realize that there are situations in which that cannot happen. But our world makes it so easy. Things get rough. Love loses its its luster, its glow. Just move on. That is not the way it ought to be. It tells those who are unmarried, those who are single, that to to really know who you're going to marry in the future, you've got to explore everything now and and enjoy and find all all kinds of... engage in in all sorts of sexual escapades so that you can find who you are, what you enjoy. It'll tell you What you need to do is find multiple partners with whom you can explore things and, and, and then eventually maybe live together and test things out, give it a test run, and then possibly then find marriage. But the scriptures tell us, they warn us, watch 
yourselves. Watch your heart. Watch your hands. Because who you date, who you marry, it matters. What you believe matters. Here we have a a living example in Esau who marries wives who do not share his, his faith in the Lord. And it pulls him away, resulting in generational problems. And the Lord instructs us not to marry someone outside the faith, not because the Lord is trying to keep something good from us, but because he wants the best for us. As one writer put it, it's not because the Lord is a, is a killjoy, but rather he tries to kill anything that would eliminate or, or mitigate our joy. Watch your hearts. Watch your hands. God's way proves right again and again. The world tells us to explore people. The world tells us to explore ideas and things and experiences. And yet what study after study these days is showing us is that God's way proves right. Every new sexual partner you add to your life decreases your your satisfaction, your joy, your health and happiness in marriage. Living together before marriage, rather than getting you a jump start, rather it is it is, studies have shown that it is the surest fire way to cause long, to cause long-lasting harm to whatever relationships come next. The wisdom of the world will tell us one thing. God's word tells us another. And God's word seeks your joy. Whether we are at work or at school or at home, we are held out at all times to, to look for the way of prosperity, the way of power. And we are told to, to risk everything else. To sacrifice families, to sacrifice um, the gathering together with God's people. To sacrifice our relationship with God for increase, for more. And part of what Moses is doing, what the Lord is trying to show us, is that all of it is a threat to our very joy in God, to our eternal happiness in Him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what the world needs now more than anything is to see courage and conviction from those who claim to be followers of Christ. And what the Lord says, we hold fast. Even when our hearts pull us in another direction. To anchor ourselves to God's word. And to trust in him. Brothers and sisters, do not be moved. Trust in the Lord. Trust in God's way. Trust in his word. Let's pray.
Our God, we, we come as a broken people, confessing the fact that we have all too often in our lives trusted other things. More than that, Father, we have actively sought our joy and happiness in ways and in places you have told us not to. We are sinners through and through. Polluted by it, broken by it, marred by it in every way. And yet the testimony that we see all throughout the Scriptures and what we have seen through the message of Genesis is that you have mercy on small and insignificant and broken, sinful people. Oh God, help us to not be enamored by the things of this world. Help us to be anchored in your word and anchored in your way. Oh God, I pray that you will grant us repentance in those areas of our own life where we have begun to go astray. I pray that you will confront, confront us. Oh God, I pray that you will use those around us to warn us, to encourage us, to hold us accountable, to love us and support us and spur us on to love and good works, knowing that the day of Christ is drawing near. Oh God, work in us. Strengthen us to look and to live for that day when all of your promises will be seen to be true. Now we live in faith. Then we will see you face to face. Oh God, give us courage and boldness to live in light of that day. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.